0: Episode 3. God bless you. Welcome back to Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. I am Kirk Van Oteham, your host for the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. And we do have a couple of uh, good questions that some listeners submitted that I want to get to uh, very quickly. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to first say thank you so much to everyone who listened to the first couple of uh, episodes of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. I'm so honored that so many people have taken the time uh, to support uh, this podcast and, and just have voiced your uh, your the fact that you like it and that you've enjoyed it and all the support that I've gotten and the many questions that people have sent in already uh, that I'm working through so thank you so much I didn't expect uh, nearly the, the response and the support that I've gotten thus far and so I'm very appreciative for that and I also wanted to mention briefly uh, this most of the people who have encountered uh, this podcast have done so over Facebook and I'm so glad for that uh, but I did want to let people know that there is also an audio-only format uh, of this program uh, that can be subscribed to via podcast applications. And if you're not familiar, podcasting is just a very easy, convenient way uh, to listen to audio uh, programs, especially on the go through your mobile device, whether it be an Apple Uh, iPhone or an Android device. Uh, There's several different apps to choose from, including ones that are made by Apple and Google themselves. It's very easy to subscribe and listen to it on the go, whether that be uh, while you're exercising or while you're commuting or taking a trip in your car. Uh, That's just some of the ways that podcasts uh, are good to have. And of course, there's other great podcasts as well, including many churches that put their uh, sermon archive in podcast format. Uh, so if that's something that interests you, check that out. To find more about this particular podcast and how to access it, you can go to our website, kirkvan.com. click on the podcast link, and there you'll find many other links and instructions on how you can subscribe to the podcast format of this program. Well, as I mentioned, I have a couple good questions I want to get to, so let's get right into it. Uh, the first question I'm going to take today is from Uh, Bill in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Bill's a friend that I met uh, running uh, various uh, events together, ultra marathons. I think we first met at a 50-mile ultra, and I met Bill and his son, and we've stayed in touch. And since that time, we've been in a couple 24-hour runs together. And so thank you, Bill, for supporting the podcast, and thank you for submitting the question. So Bill's question is this. In several places in the New Testament, they refer to a holy kiss or a sacred kiss. What does this look like in our Western American culture? Does your church family practice it? Well, first, for those uh, who may not be familiar, let me give a little background. Uh, This idea of a holy kiss is found in five different places in the epistles or the letters of the New Testament, four from Paul, one from Peter. Those scripture references quickly are Romans 16.16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16.20, 2 Corinthians 13.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.26, and then 1 Peter 5 and 14. So it refers to this idea of saluting one another or greeting one another uh, with a holy kiss. And of course this was a common practice for greeting and parting ways in the Bible era, not just uh, in Judea and among the Jews, but really all across the ancient Mediterranean world and the various uh, cultures that that entailed. And still today, many cultures uh, practice uh, a kiss of some sort uh, as an expression, a warm expression of of greeting uh, one another in love. Uh, Typically today, they might kiss one cheek or both cheeks in order to, uh, instead of a handshake, uh, that's the kind of greeting that they have. So the phrase holy kiss, this word is hagios in the Greek. It it means pure and morally blameless. So to show that this is a a non-romantic, non-affectionate type of kiss, but this is a pure and morally blameless uh, kiss, an expression of affection uh, from brother to brother, or sister to sister. Interestingly, this is also the same Greek word that is used to translate it into the word saint or saints. meaning the holy ones or the pure and morally blameless ones. So this is something that brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, the way they greet one another. And of course, in Bible days, uh, many of the people who became believers in Jesus Christ in the early church were often ostracized by family and friends uh, for partaking in this uh, weird new religion as they saw it. And so this idea of showing affection in, in this very visible Uh, a very real way to one another signified maybe a family love that so many had lost and a closeness that many might not have had uh, elsewhere in their life. Of course there was also in the early days of, of Christianity, the early years of Christianity, somewhat of a contention between Jewish and Gentile Christians, a lack of understanding of God's will in that area. They got it all straightened out and it worked beautifully in the end, And so Paul uh, was encouraging one another between Jewish and Gentile uh, uh, converts and and believers uh, to uh, fully accept one another and have unity and fellowship and love for one another, and to not just have it, you know, as a as a thought or an attitude, but express it in a in a pure and a sincere and a real way uh, by by the this culturally acceptable common practice and sign of greeting one another when they did see one another. And so on a related note, so in these same verses, we see the word salute, salute one another with a holy kiss, or greet, greet one another with a holy kiss. In both cases, uh, the Greek word here is as pasomai, as pazomai. And this Greek word appears over 60 times in scripture. It's translated to salute or to greet or to embrace. And so this often occurs in the salutation or greeting portion of the epistles or the valediction or closing port portion of the epistles and it literally means to enfold the arms or to draw to oneself so it refers certainly to embracing or what we would call hugging uh, when welcome, welcoming one another or taking leave from one another it can also be used in a more generic sense of simply greeting uh, but it literally means to embrace one another So. Actually, what, what we always focus on the holy kiss part by saying when you greet one another, when you part ways, embrace one another and kiss one another. And uh, of course, that's an expression of the love that we have for one another in Christ. Now it seems to me uh, that the emphasis here, is is not necessarily on the act of the kiss or the act of the embrace but on expressing the sincere and genuine love and displaying that uh, that we have for one another and the reason i say that is because this is perhaps uh, the most common theme in the new testament and the, one of the most of course popular well-known themes in the teaching of jesus himself i want to share a few verses of scripture uh, just to demonstrate my point And most will be familiar with these. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the love that Christians have for one another is a love that's to be demonstrated, it's a love to be expressed, it's a love that's not expressed only in private but in public only so everyone can see that love and perhaps want to take part of the same love. And so this is of course a repetitive theme in the teaching of Jesus picked up in every book of the New Testament, the love that we have for one another as followers and believers in Jesus Christ. And then I also thought, and there's so much we can set on this topic, I'll just mention a couple things. Uh, there's a Greek term in the New Testament, uh, Philadelphia. Of course, that's where we get that city. You've heard that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's because the word Philadelphia literally means brotherly love. It's a word that describes a love that two brothers, not necessarily siblings, but brothers in Christ or just close personal friends, have for one another. This phrase is found five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. The author of Hebrews uses it. Let me give you a couple quick examples. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9. But as touching brotherly love, ye, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And certainly this is referring back to the teaching of Jesus Christ on this point. Of course, the new the early church, uh, believing that Jesus Christ was in fact God, manifest in flesh, and that he commanded and encouraged his disciples to demonstrate their love for one another. The author of Hebrews chapter thirteen starts, "Let brotherly love continue again. This was such a repetitive theme in every book in the New Testament, um, and so you know in this context we can understand uh, while the, the encouragement and the inspiration uh, to let this love that we have for one another be visually and emotionally demonstrated uh, through embracing and, and kissing at one another uh, in a greeting again which was the common cultural practice of the day not just among the Jews not just among Christians or religious people but among most people in culture and Paul is saying uh, make it a holy kiss, sanctify it wholly unto God and use it as a part of your spiritual life and experience uh, with one another. So to answer the rest of this question, what does this look like in our Western American culture? Well, historically, various churches uh, with a more liturgical style of worship beginning with the Catholic Church but also adopted by others, have incorporated uh, what is originally called a kiss of peace or a sign of peace into their services or gathering, probably called such because expressing peace was also a common biblical uh, greeting and practice. So many denominations use other greetings to serve an equivalent uh, purpose, especially handshakes. So given that kissing is not common Greeting in our culture in the United States anymore, uh, for most people it seems less awkward and more appropriate uh, to shake hands rather uh, than kiss one another. And that's just simply a cultural preference. So, you know, I'm not convinced, number one, that Paul or Peter in his case uh, intended uh, this idea of the holy kiss to be a formalized part of corporate worship. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, I just don't necessarily think that was the intention. Uh, As I mentioned, it was the common cultural greeting, so it's not something they originated or instituted. So it seems to me, rather, that the intent was to be on encouraging one another to express love in a public uh, way and private way, but in their everyday interactions and in their lifestyle not as a form of worship, but just as a form of expressing the, the transformation that's taken place in our lives and the love that Christ has put in our hearts for Him and for one another. And so I think that's the, the immediate teaching, and I'll explain why a little bit more here in a moment, uh, but you know, part of that reason is in each case it appears in Scripture, uh, this idea of the holy kiss, it appears in the valediction. Or the ending, or the closing of the picture, uh, the the epistle rather. That's the case in in every sense. So it's almost as if the writers are closing their own epistle. In other words, they're parting ways with their with their reader, their intended audience, and so. Uh, it's almost as if they're saying, "Well, goodbye for now." Uh, I, you know, this this epistle is drawing to a close. I'm departing, if you would, and so I encourage you, on my behalf, to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's kind of their same way of saying uh, how someone might say today, "Well, tell everyone I said hello," or as my mom would say when I end a phone conversation with you, "Give everyone a kiss for me." I think it's more of that, and not necessarily trying to institute it into the corporate worship. Uh, it seems if that was the intention, it would be uh, inserted in discussions of corporate worship and not just at the end of a epistle, kind of uh, as a closing. I'm also not persuaded uh, that the, it is the kiss that is meant to be uh, the focus of the aspect on the instruction in these cases, uh, as the kiss, the, the act of the kiss itself is the important feature. It seems to me that when we consider all the various scriptural teachings on brotherly love and kindness and affection and fellowship and and unity and all the other things, which makes up a a good huge chunk of the New Testament, that that is the focus. Uh, The kiss is just one expression of this. It's one way that uh, that we can uh, demonstrate this. Uh, but the kiss itself is not so much as important as the expression of our love and affection one for another. And the kiss was just mentioned because, as I said, it was the common standard expression of the day. If it was a different time in a different place in culture, they might have said, you know, shake hands with one another or, or whatever uh, the case may be. So, uh, to get to the next part of the question then, does your church family practice it? Well, where I minister and attend church, uh, we do typically have a greeting period in, in the um, in the service. Uh, I remember a time when we didn't, but we've done that for many years now. And since we started this practice many years ago, I, uh, or when I should say we started the practice, I don't believe we ever envisioned it to be a fulfillment of this particular biblical directive. I think we just thought it would be a nice way for people to interact and get together and, and, and you know, meet one another and uh, say hello to one another and just kind of set the tone for the service. We do it somewhat early in the service. A lot of churches do this sort of thing. So for us, it wasn't anything to have to do with liturgical style. Uh, I guess that never occurred to us from that perspective. Of course, we don't have a formal liturgy and and a, uh, it's it's more of a uh, a non-directed uh, service, I guess you could say, in our particular case. And in the Pentecostal heritage, of which you know, I'm a part of, uh, it does not, it, it of course, does place a lot of emphasis on love and unity and fellowship and what have you, as the Bible does. Uh, I can't say that I've ever heard people place emphasis on a holy kiss as a part of that, other than just a general expression of love in that regard. I would say, you know, um, again, in our, in our church culture, Um, you know exchanging hugs is very common uh, that sort of thing and so um, in that way I think we do uh, live up to the spirit and the intention of this directive although not with a kiss as most people in the west probably do not I've been to a lot of churches I was born and raised catholic and I was born uh, or I've been to a lot of churches over the years I have yet to see a church service where they encourage one another to kiss one another or where they preach that you should kiss one another when you see each other in the Walmart or in the, you know, walking down the street or whatever, Uh, but we hear lots and lots of preaching on loving one another and expressing and showing your love one for another, so I think that's fulfillment of it. You know, I'm personally in favor of encouraging believers to be more intentional about expressing love and acceptance and unity, etc., in the form of warm greetings in every other way. And in my opinion, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to, you know, greet my brothers in Christ with a hug. Uh, those that I know, I don't freak people out that I don't know. Uh, and I think we should do more of that. I think that's a true reflection of Christianity. I think it, uh, it's a good thing. And again, since kissing is not a standard greeting in the United States, I don't think most people are comfortable with that. Uh, affectionate handshakes and embracing in a hug, uh, when it's appropriate to do so, I think is, is a good reflection of this teaching. And and although when I think more about it, it is somewhat sad that this form of greeting has you know, imparting from one another has fallen out of practice because it is a beautiful thing. Uh, But since the culture being what it is, uh, I don't think it's the most important thing we need to focus on as long as we focus on love and unity and fellowship and those sorts of things. So thank you so much, uh, Bill, for the question. I hope that I have done justice uh, to the answer and uh, appreciate you submitting that to me. And so I want to move on to another question for today. This question comes from John in Hartford City, Indiana. And the question is, I've always wondered why we don't use the original pronunciation of the name Jesus. People still call you by your name no matter where you travel. I am John wherever I go. If someone all of a sudden started pronouncing my name as Carl, I don't think that uh, I wouldn't think that they were talking to me, just something I've wondered about. Well, the answer to this, uh, honestly, John can be rather complex and involved and it's a bit out of my depth. Uh, it's something I've looked into myself. Uh, but let me just start by saying the simple answer is in terms of why we don't you know, pronounce the name of Jesus according what John calls the original. I assume you're meaning Hebrew name uh, or perhaps you mean something else, Greek name, whatever it is. Uh, the reason is... That's simply just how languages work. Uh, Different languages often don't share the same pronunciation of words for a variety of reasons and some of the most significant reason is that uh, that because they don't share the same alphabet or the same writing system, which often means they don't share all of the same sounds vocally. And so that's why we have approximations or transliterations between languages. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But while it's a bit off the topic, and this isn't what John is asking specifically, I want to point out that there are some that actually make pronunciation of the name of Christ a point of doctrinal contention. Uh, I'll also address that briefly in a bit, uh, since it's related to the question. So back to the question. It is true today, as John pointed out, that there are some names that are bilingual or multilingual. In other words, they're spelled and or pronounced the same in more than one language. Uh, This can happen because two or more languages are just similar enough and have the same kind of uh, vocal sounds uh, that that it works. But more commonly it happens when there's just no equivalent uh, for a name in one language in, in, in the new language or the other language. And so they just adopt the name from the original language as it is. So that can be some t- challenging sometimes if the sounds that need to be made are, are not uh, common to the culture, which is why many people when they move to a, a another country or visit another country and have another language, they'll often uh, kind of uh, change their name, change the pronunciation, or use an alternative name for themselves so that, so that it's not uh, a thing every time with the last name of Van Odahem I know what it's like to shorten the name as the podcast suggests and so many people do that just because it's hard for people to say or pronounce and so uh, that's often the case. So yes there are some names today that are are, are pronounced the same in, in two or more languages. Uh, that's not the case for all names it is the case for some names. The vast majority of all names that are internationally shared between different languages do have many spelling and pronunciation variants. That's especially the case when we're talking about the names of historical and or religious significance, especially Bible names. So the name of Jesus is by no means unique in this regard. Uh, Most of the other names from the Bible also have this in common, as many as, as well as many other uh, historical names that are not in the Bible, so this is not a unique phenomenon to the name of Jesus or to Bible names. Uh, this is something that happens a lot. Uh, just uh, just a few of the issues that involved in this and the reasons why this has happened. As I mentioned, or I guess I didn't mention this part, but both the Hebrew and Greek languages use a different alphabet than we use, the, the U.S. English alphabet uh, or the English alphabet in general. They actually, have you know different characters than the Latin Roman alphabet that the English languages use? If you ever seen Greek or Hebrew written down on a page, uh, especially in the case of Hebrew, you wouldn't recognize any of the symbols unless you've learned that. In the case of uh, Greek, some of them look similar, but but most of them look totally different and foreign to the letters that we're accustomed to looking at. So not only are the letters different, but frequently when comparing one alphabet to another there is not a letter for letter equivalent and there's also not a sound for sound equivalent so every letter and combination of letters, make, letters makes up a sound that you say and some languages just do not have sounds that exist in that language that other languages have and so that's the need uh, for transliterating it to putting it in a way that can be easily pronounced or in some case just some more rare cases, just pronounced at all. I mean, if you've heard people from certain parts of the world try to speak English, even though they may have studied it for many years, uh, their pronunciation may be very uh, poor. And that's just because their brains have been taught to speak another way. It's not because they're not intelligent or they haven't worked hard to learn it. Uh, but it's hard to get past these habits that you have when you're brought up in a culture. And so that's why they have approximations or transliterations. There's some sounds that simply don't exist uh, in, in, in other sounds, or in other languages, rather. And so uh, they must be transliterated. A quick web search reveals a, the, the complexity of the issues involved in translation and transmission and transliteration. Uh, there are 44 different writing systems that exist today. Many of them have multiple derivatives. The Latin Roman alphabet or script uh, that English uses is used by about 135 languages. That's a lot of languages, but as you'll see in a moment, that's not a lot. It's not near most of them. Uh, even within this system, uh, so the Roman uh, Latin uh, alphabet that we use, and the 135 languages and use it, even within those 135 languages, pronunciation and spelling is often different between even those languages. And we're talking about languages that are very similar, not ones that are completely different. Uh, so that's only one of 44 systems, and most of these systems have multiple derivatives. So Uh, We're not just talking about 44 alphabets, we're talking about 44 base alphabets with dozens and dozens of dozens of different uh, derivatives based off of those. As far as languages go, there are 74 different language families that exist today. That's just major branches uh, of languages. That's just languages that are similar in some ways. Of those 74 language families, there are about 6,500 spoken languages today. So it's a huge challenge to get every, get words in a way that can be pronounced by everyone. It's just, it's just not possible because of the way the languages work. Uh, of course, about 2,000 of those languages are spoken by small group, but 4,500 is still a huge number of languages spoken by many, many people all over the world. So now that we've kind of addressed that question, explain why this happens and why or pronouncing the name of Jesus. And again, many, many other names. It's not unique to that. Uh, Let me address the other part of the question that wasn't specifically answered, but I think is related. There are a few newer fringe uh, religious groups that want to make an issue out of the language and pronunciation of the name of Christ. Uh, They claim that it must be pronounced according to the original Hebrew is the case with most of these groups uh, or at least what they perceive to be the original. But let me just say their arguments are completely unfounded. They're completely erroneous. Now it's one thing if a person or group just likes or prefers to use the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus. I don't have a problem with that. I don't know many people that would. But when they begin to insist that it's necessary for religious or spiritual reasons that you pronounce the name of Jesus according to the Hebrew, then that's where we have a major problem. And, and, I, and I don't like this kind of strong language generally, but I would say, in fact, that's just false doctrine, plain and simple. I'm not a linguist or an expert on this topic by any means, but I'm fairly well read on the topic, and I know enough to conclude that those that make this a point of doctrinal Uh, contention are simply ignorant regarding biblical language and the translation and transmission process. There is no, let me say this slowly, there is no biblical or doctrinal or theological or spiritual problem with pronouncing the name of Jesus according to one's native language. Now, there are multiple problems with the view on insisting of Hebrew pronunciation for the name of Christ. I'll just mention a couple very quickly, a couple of the more blatant ones. Perhaps the most obvious flaw in this teaching and this reasoning is that the New Testament s- itself, which was written in the Greek language, not the Hebrew language, the Greek language, the entire New Testament was written in Greek, it exclusively uses the Greek equivalent for the name of the Messiah, the name of Christ. Jesus is in the English. So the Greek name would be pronounced something akin to Jesus, not the Hebrew name, which traditionally is, is, is pronounced Yeshua. So let me, let me make this clear. The apostles and the other New Testament writers themselves had no problem transliterating the name to the Greek language for their Greek-speaking audiences. When they said that Jesus Christ is the name above every name, they used the Greek, Isus. When they said, be baptized in the name of Jesus, they used the Greek, Isus. When they said, there's no other name given among heaven where we must be saved, they were referring to the name Isus, which they just gave in the previous verses. And so they had no problem. Uh, it was not an issue for them to say uh, to say the name in the language of the audiences that they were addressing. They didn't insist on a Hebrew form. There's, there's a few cases in the New Testament where they uh, use Aramaic expressions, so it was it's not completely foreign to insert uh, another word that's not Greek into the New Testament, but they didn't do that when it came to recording the name of the Messiah. Uh, Isus is what that would be in the Greek again. So they didn't convey any belief that pronunciation in other languages was inferior in any way Uh, This was something that was totally foreign to the writers of the New Testament. And if the apostles didn't have an issue with it, and the apostles didn't give us the idea and the teaching that you have to pronounce it in the Hebrew or any certain way whatsoever, in one language only, uh, then I think it's foolhardy of us to believe that we need to. Now further, we don't even really know... Uh, what Jesus' Jewish family and friends addressed him, or the way in which they addressed him. History tells us that Jews in this region and in this era spoke Aramaic, the Aramaic language, not Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the Neo-Assyrians that the Jews picked up during the Assyrian Babylonian diaspora, so they had been speaking it for quite a while. In Aramaic, the name would probably not be pronounced Yeshua, or it would probably be been pronounced something similar to Eshoah, which is much closer to the Greek, by the way. And so, you know, those are insisting, no, you have to say it this way. We don't even know that that's not what he was uh, popularly called by those around him uh, when Jesus walked on the earth. And not only that, but there's not even a consensus regarding how this name was properly pronounced in Hebrew. Yeshua seems to be the most common Uh, 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 pronunciation that we think of but there was also a longer form Yahashua some people have uh, have claimed that it's properly pronounced Yahshua and there's even a a form that we know that we found in documents as Hoshia which is the the, uh, reference to the exact same name so there's alternative pronunciations. We don't know which one would have been used for Jesus if in fact they even referred to him by his Hebrew name. Linguists have to determine that there's not even a single correct way to spell and pronounce the name among the Jews that lived in the day that Christ lived. Uh, there were several known Hebrew dialects, and each, and I say dialect, but it also included spelling and pronunciation. We weren't there, and we don't have tape recording device, but we know how, we, how they pronounced it, but we know they spelled it a number of different ways, or at least people who had the exact same name. It was a common name in the time. Uh, we, for example, the Galilean and the Judean spellings and most likely pronunciations are known to have been different. Not to mention the other dialects, those are the two most prominent ones. So insisting on a particular pronunciation uh, just doesn't seem uh, like a good idea uh, in light of these facts. And there are several other difficulties with pronunciation and and transliteration of the name of Jesus in particular. For example, there's no Greek equivalent to the sh sound. Uh, from the Hebrew letter Shin that appears in the name of Jesus. So the, they, that sound didn't exist in Greek, so they couldn't say it that way uh, uh, reasonably well, at least, or, or naturally. The Hebrew letter uh, Ein, which is the last letter in the name of the Messiah, uh, has no equivalent sound or pronunciation in Greek or in English. It's, it's known to be a rough, guttural sound in the Hebrew, that is not found in Greek or English. So it's not really possible for us to even pronounce it right. So what that means, most people don't even know this, what that means is that native English speakers would actually have to train their voice considerably in order to even create the sounds that it would take to pronounce that letter correctly. It wouldn't come natural to us at all. Unless you've studied it, you wouldn't even know that case. This also means, by the way, that most adherents to this Hebrew-only view aren't pronouncing the name correctly themselves in almost every case. So we could go on and on, but the bottom line is that languages and writing systems and translations and transliterations and pronunciations and so forth, it's all a very complex business and it's also a moving target historically because languages morph and change over time. In fact, the people who speak... uh, Greek and Hebrew today, uh, it's almost a different language entirely than what it was then. And there's many, many words in in the alphabet themselves that aren't pronounced the same today as they were then among modern speakers. So regarding the name of Jesus, the significance of the name is not in the language or the spelling or the pronunciation. It's not in the reverberation of sound waves moving through the air. The importance of the name of Christ is in what the name means and represents. The literal etymological meaning is something like Yahweh saves, or Yahweh will save, or Yahweh is salvation. And so we know what that means, and that's the important thing, that we get the meaning of it. The significance and the importance of the name of Christ is in the power and the authority that is vested in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth through the Incarnation. As Peter and John said uh, in Acts chapter number 3, it is in His name by faith in His name. So it's in the faith that we place in His name as our Savior. And this is why the Apostle Paul and the other Apostles and New Testament writers could confidently and unapologetically proclaim the name of Jesus to the Greek-speaking audiences. And this is also why English-speaking preachers in America and other places in the world can confidently and unapologetically proclaim the name of J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. The bottom line is there is no biblical, doctrinal, theological, spiritual reason for saying the name of Christ in one specific language over another. That includes Hebrew or any other language, and anyone who tells you something differently is woefully misinformed. So there's many other points that could be made, but for the sake of time, we'll have to end it there. I do want to give a recommendation on a book if people are further interested in this topic. Uh, The author is Dr. Daniel Seagraves. The book's name is The Messiah's Name and he gives many other points beyond the, the ones that I gave. I have read this book many years ago and I haven't picked it up for a while um, but I do recall it being an excellent resource on this particular question. Well, I'm a little over the time that I would like to normally wrap things up so thank you for listening today. We need to cut it off here. So, appreciate you taking the time uh, to listen to Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. And so, until next time. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance unto thee and give thee peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye for now.